This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, The Straits Times podcast where we talk about books in the headlines and recommend you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I'm here today with my colleague To Wenli. Hello. Hi Wenli. Today we're going to be talking about two new novels about women and memories. So these are How We Disappeared by Li Jingjing and Memories of the Future by Syria Hesved. So please do note that this episode may contain mentions of sexual assault. So if that's something that makes you uncomfortable, you should stop here. So Memories of the Future by Syria Hesved. Is it a memoir? Is it not a memoir? The main character is called SH. Like yes, Syria. exactly. Well, some people described it as a semi-autobiographical or at least a fictionalized a semi-autobiographical novel or fictionalized memoir. It's somewhere in between. As you, as you as you correctly pointed out, the main character, the narrator in this book is a woman called SH. It stands for presumably a reference to the author Siri Hustvet. So essentially, Memories of the Future is about this woman who is now in her 60s, much like Siri Hustvet herself, who is 64 this year. And this woman revisits episodes from her past. And the story takes place mainly between the years 1978 and 1979, where she talks about how she moved from rural Minnesota in the United States to New York City, having just graduated from university, and she wants to make a name for herself as an aspiring writer. So it's about SH's life in the city. Um, she befriends um, coven, so to speak, of interesting characters, her neighbor, Lucy Bright, and this very worldly artist-poet known as Whitney, among other people. So it's about SH's experiences in New York City, and it's kind of a retrospective because you get a sense of an older woman thinking about revisiting scenes from her past and some of these events are told in the form of diary entries from that period as well. And there are also some excerpts from the novel, um, the, the book that SH was trying to write at the time. So um, is it a memoir? Well, I guess SH, is, she's a very self-conscious writer and she does suggest that memoirs might not always be 100% non-fiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to read out a scene from early on in the novel where SH has just moved into her new apartment in New York City. I remember the door closing on Mr. Rosales, and I remember my jubilation. I remember the two rooms of the old apartment, and I can walk from one to the other in my mind. I can still see the space, but if I'm honest, I cannot describe the precise configurations of the cracks in the bedroom ceiling. The lumpy lines and delicate flowerings I know were there because I studied them. Nor am I absolutely certain about the dimensions of the refrigerator, for example, which I believe to have been smallish. I'm quite sure it was white and it may have been round at its corners, not square. The more I focus on remembering, the more details I'm likely to provide. But those particulars may well be invented. And so, I will not expound on the appearance, for example, of the potatoes that lay on the plates in front of me 38 years ago. I will not tell you whether they were pale and boiled or sautéed lightly or au gratin or fried because I do not remember them. If you are one of those readers who relishes memoirs filled with impossibly specific memories, I have this to say. Those authors who claim perfect recall of the hash browns decades later are not to be trusted. So she kind of questions the project of memory, doesn't she? Yes, in a way, but that's not all she explores in the book mm. as well. I guess you could describe Siri Hustvet as a kind of writer's writer. What does that mean? In the sense that she writes for, or she doesn't write for other writers, but I think people who have a literary bent will, in particular, will, will appreciate her writing, perhaps more so than people who aren't as interested in the authors she references in the book. Her, her book abounds with these um, with a cast of literary figures who, whom she alludes to throughout the book. There are references to, there are references to Juna Barnes, the author of Nightwood, references to the philosopher Wittgenstein, 
And she's also very self-conscious. So quite early on in the novel, she talks about this idea of, she talks about the process of remembering and writing. She says, as I wrote, I was also being written. The book had been started long before I left the plains. Multiple drafts of a mystery had already been inscribed in my brain. So a very self-conscious look at the idea of writing also with the benefit of hindsight, she's talking about her younger self too. At the same time, the, the younger SH grapples with the idea of what it means to be a woman in what is essentially a, a man's world or a male-dominated industry, and how she uh, and, and throughout the book she brings in these vignettes, touching on how she has in the past been undermined, overshadowed by male figures in her life. And these encounters are often quite nuanced, but you can tell that they did leave an impression on her. There's one memory in the book where she recalls her father telling her that she would make an amazing nurse. And she feels very disappointed because her father is, is an incredible doctor and she had always aspired to be a doctor like her father. And obviously, later on, we find out that she, she does end up becoming a doctor, but not the medical kind. Of, she gets a PhD, like like Hustvedt herself. And also later in the story, there's one scene, a, a dinner table scene, where she is having dinner with a bunch of people. One of them is this man professor called Martin, who is just very condescending and doesn't take the philosophical musings of the women around him seriously. So there, there's one scene where he makes this offhandish remark to a woman called Patty. He says, Oh, Patty, please, no philosophies from female nether regions. I've listened to your views for years, but they have been either consistent or logical. Later on, he addresses the narrator as sage and says, I don't suppose you have anything to add to this venerable philosophical debate, my dear. And then that just triggers her. She basically starts this impassioned philosophical tirade and she talks about philosophy. She talks about issues of such precision and authority and she essentially just teaches the man a lesson. Mm, I love a good mansplain a clap back. <laughs> and, and also, um, I mean, just to annoy him even more, like later on she talks, she refers to him as so-and-so's husband. Um, <laughs> which is, I think, an insider joke because Husfet herself, she's married to this famous novelist Paul Auster. Paul Auster. Yeah, and she's often referred to as Paul Auster's wife. So I think that there might have been a subtle allusion to that. Yeah. And then later in the book, we also get references to Marcel Duchamp's Urinal, his famous work of art, which the narrator points out was possibly the creation of a woman. So he might have been given credit for her work when it wasn't due. So th- this woman was a baroness by the name of Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven. So uh, she was a female Dada artist. And, um, and, yeah, so and Tursford has explored this before, hasn't she, in The Blazing World about, you know, men and women in art and who takes credit for what. Yeah, I mean, these are issues that, that are very close to Hustvedt's heart and she does explore them time and again, the idea of women artists and art in society. And obviously the b- title Blazing World is a reference to Margaret Cavendish's science fiction novel from the 1500s. So it's, it's nice, I guess she tries to overturn these conventions as well, turn them on their head, mm. science fiction being often not associated with men, male writers. Mm, so in that book, she as a woman gives asks some male artists to take credit for her work to see if they are received differently in society and you know of course they are much more lauded than she is as a female yeah. artist and that's such a um, incisive critique of the art world yes definitely a lot of food for thought I mean I feel the ending was very hopeful you get this image of a woman rising and all jubilant and, and empowered but it felt a bit unconvincing mm, but didn't but, appeal to the cynic in you didn't appeal to the cynic in me no <laughs> but, but I really appreciate the fabric of Husvet's writing. It's so self-conscious, it's so subtle, so nuanced. I think just reading it for the writing style alone, I mean, it's a pleasure in itself to be recommended. Yes, that brings us to our next writer, um, Singaporean writer Li Jingjing, 
who has written her debut novel, How We Disappeared. So Li Xingjing is a local author who is not based here. She's based in Amsterdam with her husband and new baby. And she has written books in Singapore before, most notably with Math Paper Press. But this is her first big international debut. And it's with One World, which is the publisher behind books like Marlon James' A Brief History of Seven Killings, Paul Beatty's The Sellout. Both of those books are Man Booker Prize winners. And One World is known for being this quite small press. It's very selective with their work. And But once they do pick something, they push it very hard and they somehow they get it into all the awards. Yeah, so I don't know. Is this our best shot? <laughs> Singapore's best shot at the book? <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, anyway, anyway, I do very much appreciate this book. It's beautifully written and extremely devastating. It's about a woman called Wang Di, who in the year 2000, she's 75, and she's living alone, newly widowed. And she's trying to deal with the memories of her past. In the past, during World War II, she was taken as a comfort woman by the Japanese during the occupation of Singapore. So a comfort woman is this euphemism that the Japanese used for the women that they pressed into essentially sexual slavery. And there were thought to be, I think, more than 200,000 of them across Asia before and during World War II. And it's an ongoing issue that's been very incendiary recently because the Japanese have struggled to acknowledge that they did Mm. this and South Korea, where most of the comfort women came from. They have been pushing for reparations for the women who are now, many of them are in their 90s and several have passed on. And yeah, then it's, you know, who knows if this will ever, ever be resolved. Anyway, Wang Di is born in early pre-war Singapore, born to a poor Chinese family. When her father sees that she is a girl, he's very disappointed and they give her the name Wang Di, which literally in Chinese means looking forward to a brother. I think that was a fairly common practice at a time where parents of, yeah. of, in that era tried to, you know, parents who weren't able to have a son, they tried to reflect these aspirations in the names of their daughters. Yeah, because the girls are considered inferior. Yeah. And so from the beginning of her life, Wang Di is considered to be like a placeholder or like, like a signifier for something better to come. And yeah. she sort of internalizes this. So even when she is taken by the Japanese and she thinks, I am being sacrificed for so my brothers can live. And she keeps, you know, telling herself, yes, I deserve this. That's what I'm meant to do. And so in this house, she's taken and she's become, she's given the name of Fujiko. She has to service soldiers every day and she has to also endure starvation, random beatings. Um, then there's a strange and farcical scene where all the girls must sing patriotic Japanese songs on the national holiday mm. and all the soldiers just like clap and cry. And she's like, well, this is surreal. And uh, so she has friends in the house. She has a girl from a village called Hui, and she befriends this Korean woman called Jomsun, who has been doing this for five years. And you know, when she hears that, she's like, five years? It's unimaginable to her after the first night what she's gone through. But Jomsun is a survivor, and she helps Wang Di and Hui get through what they're going through every day. And uh, so this is what happened to Wang Di in the past. There are three strands to the book. One is past Wang Di. Then there is Wang Di in the, in the year 2000 as a lonely old woman who is a cardboard collector. And she, because of this, her neighbors ostracize her. She's not familiar with the neighborhood because she had to move out of the flat that she lived with her husband for 40 years after he died. And uh, so I'm going to read a little bit about her experiences. It was the neighbors, their whispers and looks that did it made her habit creep back into her bones like pain from an old break. Along with it came memories of the other women, the ones she had left behind, her friends, Hui, especially, her bitten nails, 
the way she drew a perfect parting down the center of her hair each morning, even when she was ill. All of her, flitting through the open door of Wang Di's mind like a bird flown into a room, trapped and panicked. I've got this arresting image of a bird yeah. denied its freedom. It's not, you know, she doesn't go for a very big showy images. These are things that you have seen before. But I get this sense of great delicacy in her writing yeah. as if she's proceeding on this cracked surface that, you know, any moment could just give way to, you know, and you fall into anguish. And the whole novel is sort of cracked in this fashion. And it's also looking at people who have fallen through the cracks, you know, people like, uh, you know, who are elderly people, yeah, the cardboard, collector, cardboard collectors, yeah. people who have survivors of sexual assault and that trauma that you go through is at the same time that's doubled by the fact that once you come out you can't talk about it and that's another thing that she has to deal with so I'm going to read a different part which talks about why it's been so difficult for women who were comfort women to talk about their experiences years later I heard about a girl who made her way home only to have her parents proclaim that they had never seen her never known her or spoken her name in their lives. She waited outside the hut where she grew up, until it started to storm. Just as quickly as she had returned, she disappeared again, as if washed away by the rain and the wind. It's really poignant, I think, right, because she's this figure who has been doubly forgotten. First, is this victim of wartime atrocities as a comfort woman. And secondly, she, she, she later becomes a, a cardboard collector, another figure in society that has often been overlooked that you would and rather not look at. You know? Exactly. And it's not just forgetting or, or not being aware that, that you're aware that they're there, but there are so many people who, who just try to turn the other way, this reluctance to, yeah. and to reckon with. She herself has turned away from other stories. So because of her own trauma, she found it very difficult to listen to her husband. Her husband is also a war survivor. Something happened to him during the war that he's tried to tell her about, but she can't listen to it. And now that he's dead, she regrets this. So she spends a lot of the book trying to find out what it was that happened to her husband. But because she's an old woman, illiterate, she can only do this by going to people that she knew, like, you know, his chess buddies mm. or the baker who, you know, sold them bread and being like, can you tell me about my husband? And then, of course, they'd be like, but why would we tell you about your husband? Surely you know about your husband. And at the same time, the third strand of this book is of this young boy called Kevin. He's 12 years old. He's bullied in school because he wears spectacles. He's short-sighted. And um, also his parents are not very well off. His dad is a swimming pool cleaner. And his mom is a secretary at a shipping company. So his grandmother is, uh, has a stroke. And then later she dies. And then on her deathbed, she makes this garbled confession to him, thinking that he's his father. And she says that his father is not her son. Uh, she found him. And um, she's sorry. She meant to give him back, but she didn't. And based on this, Kevin goes on this quest to find out who his real grandparents are. So he's armed with this tape recorder that his grandmother used to record her old radio operas. And he just and a limited grasp of Chinese. And he tries to find out this history of his family. So, so we have Wang Di looking for the history of her husband, and then Kevin looking for the history of his grandparents. And uh, Kevin's story is actually um, one of the li- more on the lighter side. It adds there's a certain comedy to it, which yeah. um, I think is quite welcome in this otherwise very dark book. But even though the comedy is also kind of mournful, there's a scene that takes place in the hospital, and she writes it as if it were you know it has the beats of a drama, but it's a, mm. like a comic drama. But it's a really sad scene. You know, involving the, the young boy. 
yeah, it's this uh, sort of like moment where the because the boy has a tendency to think caps locks, and he wants to ask his father why why are you a pool swimming pool cleaner? Mm. But then he realizes he can't. His father's just staring at him, and then his mother's trying to feed his grandmother soup, and then it's dribbling down because she's had a stroke, and then. Her, his mother not using her hospital voice is like tissue paper, tissue paper, <laughs> and then the nurse comes in and with the tissue paper, and then when everyone the nurse has left and his grandmother starts to cry, and you know, and then you you feel bad for the having found comedy in this scene, but yeah, so this balance is she has to be so careful about the balance of the novel, you know, because you can't if it's too dark, people won't read it, but at the same time you. Don't how do you treat this responsibly? Yeah, how do you treat this responsibly? You don't want to wallow in suffering. You don't want to make it exploitative or graphic, you know, and focus on sexual violence for the sake of sexual violence. You want to treat it with respect. Yeah. But you don't want to water it down. And I think she does that well. But at the same time, it was very hard for me to read as a woman because it felt kind of like there were parts of it that I felt like I was being hollowed out on the inside, which is not a great recommendation if you're trying to make someone read a book but yes. I do think people should read this book especially because it's coming out in this time where we're this curious crossroads of crazy rich Asians and the bicentennial yeah. you know and so and the world's looking at Singapore and they see this glitzy economically successful place and same time the bicentennial is trying to look back in our history and, and then there are all this, these conflicts about what about our history we should be looking back at yeah. and there's so many different stories and stories that have been erased stories that aren't given that you recognition and in Singapore has always been this has always been an issue in, in Singapore's recent history right this idea of how we've been progressing at such an such a rapid pace there are buildings disappearing that the younger people today do not have any memories of you've got this young boy and, and how he disappeared the novel you were talking about and he's myopic and I don't think that's I, mean, I don't think that's a coincidence it's, it's yeah. inability to see far a yeah. short-sighted view of what's in front of you and also this his use of the record player I found quite interesting how he's He's trying to capture this sense of oral history and, you know, mm. the power to, to make you, to have yourself heard. I mean, hopefully that doesn't just rest with people who can write, people who can record events in the annals of history. Yes. It should also belong to people who, to the marginalized, to those who don't always have a voice, people who might not be educated, people who might not have been able to go to school. They all have their voices and the voices should be heard too. Yes. And so this, I think ultimately it is a hopeful novel. It, it does look at the effect of telling a story and whether or not that can help you if you have been through trauma. And I think that it handles this respectfully, but not in a maudlin way. And it's important, especially as you know, we move into an era where someday there will be a point in time where nobody living will have living memory of World War Two. And it's important that future generations take that responsibility and make that effort. It's not easy. It's not easy to listen to all of this and to, or to read about difficult history. But it's important that these things are remembered and that they don't just, you know, disappear. I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for joining us once again. I'm Olivia Ho and I'm with To Wen Lee. Today we have been talking about How We Disappeared by Li Jingjing and Memories of the Future by Siri Hutzfeld. Catch you next time. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.